You got to put copper and iron together. They're, they are freaking frack. They are yin and yang. They are, they are absolutely interdependent in our body. And we need to put them together to understand what's happening to the level of oxidative stress in our body. On this week's podcast, I have the pleasure of talking to Morley Robbins. Morley is an incredible human. <laughs> He's brilliant. He's really uh, I'd say vigorous for a gentleman in his mid 70s, and he has really interesting ideas that are unique. I never thought about copper, magnesium, and iron in the way that I do after talking to him. A friend sent me one of his podcasts, and I got interested, so I had him on. And so we've really just begun to dive into these issues with Morley. His idea that a lot of chronic illness is at least in part linked to copper deficiency is compelling. I did my blood work that he recommended. I'm gonna talk about the results of that blood work and some uh, things that I'm gonna to do to adjust the blood work on the next podcast with Morley, so stay tuned for that. My copper and ceruloplasmin looked okay, but Morley thought I could use a little more copper. So I'm basically gonna increase my liver and copper consumption in my diet and we'll keep you guys posted, but I'll share all the blood work in the next podcast. But it's, it's interesting to think, as Morley says, that there are so many inputs in our diet and lifestyle that are chelating copper, whether it's penicillin antibiotics, whether it's glyphosate, whether it's just nutrient-poor soils. It's quite fascinating. So enjoy this podcast with Morley Robbins. I encourage you to pause and rewind if it's technical, have an open mind and think about these things. Interestingly, we come back to the place that we see so often, getting organs in your diet is critical and making sure those organs are sourced from good quality farms is super important, which is again, why I'm proud of what we do at Heart and Soil exclusively from regenerative farms in New Zealand and Australia. Enjoy this podcast with Morley Robbins. And if you're watching this on YouTube, please put questions in the comments. I will answer them in the next video with Morley. Thanks guys. Morley Robbins, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you, my friend. Absolutely delighted to have this uh, exchange and looking forward to where it might lead. Yeah, me too. As, as we talked about before the podcast, I've got a feeling this will be the first of a couple of conversations. Yeah. I don't think we'll get through everything today. I think this could be a little technical for people. So I'll say from the outset, you know, if there are technical parts of this conversation for, for you guys, we'll, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to summarize and we'll, we'll try to keep it high level. And then maybe in the future conversations, we'll get a little more, a little more detailed, but let's, I, so today I want to talk about magnesium. I want to talk about copper. I want to talk about iron. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about these minerals, these elements that, that affect who we are as humans. And I'm very fascinated by your, your thoughts and your research on this. Let's start with magnesium. Yeah. Magnesium, I think, was the first thing that you got interested in. And I would love to hear how that happened and, and sort of like your high-level perspective on what you think is the issue with magnesium for humans and why so many of us are deficient and how we fix that. Yeah. And then from magnesium, we can segue into iron and copper. And ultimately, I think what we're talking about here is just how to leverage all this information for optimal human health. Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, I'm a, I'm a pre-med pre -med retread. I uh, <laughs> had designs on being a doctor and that wasn't going to happen. Uh, I applied. I got, I got 12 rejections in one day. That was pretty intense. <laughs> wow. But if you, don't, if you don't go to medical school, you go to business school because you're going to boss the doctors around. So I yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the smarter thing to do. Yeah, I did that. And I was in the, uh, in the hospital industry for 32 years, and I, I could tell my stock and trade as a consultant was forecasting, projecting where, where things are going to be, you know, 10, 20, 30 years out. And it was scary. I mean, every, every disease index was a hockey stick taking off. 
And I knew something was wrong. I didn't know what it was. And after pulling a suitcase behind my back for 20 years, I developed what's called frozen shoulder. I couldn't pick my hand up above my waist. I was miserable. And I went to a health food store that I had been going to for 20-some years. And they told me to see Dr. Liz, who I knew right away was a chiropractor. And I'm like, wait, I don't do, I don't do witchcraft. And so they sold me some supplements. And then I came back a couple months later. I was still miserable. And the owner looked me in the eye and she said, Morley, we love you. Go see Dr. Liz. <laughs> so Dr. Liz is now my wife, just to give you a sense of the impact she had on my life. And she said something in that very first encounter that stopped me in my tracks. And she was referring to the innate healer. I've been in hospitals for 32 years. I'd never heard that phrase before. And I didn't say anything to her. And I thought to myself, if there's an innate healer, why do we need millions of Paul Saladinos around the world healing us? It just it didn't make sense to me. And so I set out to do research to find out why is everyone so sick? And as fate would have it, one of the first books I came upon was um, The Magnesium Miracle, which is just, you know Carolyn Dean's uh, signature book, great book. And it was like reading a murder mystery because I just spent 30 years you know, working in hospitals and seeing all this misery. And the way she connected the dots, well, everyone has a magnesium deficiency. So, I mean, I took a big dive into magnesium deficiency and stress, which triggers its loss, as you know. And, you know, there's thousands of different forms of stress. But there's only four categories of stress, according to Mildred Seelig, who was a world-renowned magnesium expert. Uh, she actually started her career as a, a drug researcher. And when she realized that every drug she was working on caused magnesium loss, she flipped her whole paradigm mm. and left and started focusing on why magnesium is important. But you have environmental stress, physical stress, metabolic stress, and psychological stress. But there's a stressor in the center that no one really talks about, and it's called oxidative stress. We're on a planet with 21% oxygen. <laughs> it's, it's a very powerful dynamic, as you well know. And what do iron and oxygen like to do? They like to play together. What, what keeps them in re proper regulation? Copper. That's its job. And it can do it simultaneously. And when you can keep iron and oxygen in regulation, you don't lose as much magnesium. Mm. So um, the magnesium burn rate, as I coined it, uh, is caused by stress. And and it was really, it was a group of, of Italian researchers. If you really want to understand iron metabolism, go to Italy. Those, those folks know it inside and out. And they were the ones that really got me to realize the power of dysregulated iron to react with the oxygen that's supposed to be activated in our mitochondria, right? And it becomes water. And that transaction, I think it's the most critical uh, transaction on planet Earth, is turning oxygen into two molecules of water to release ADP so it can become ATP. And that takes place at a pH of 7, absolute requirement for uh, neutral pH. And it's clipping along at a pretty prodigious rate, as you probably know. And we actually produce 
our body weight in ATP every day. So that's a that's a hefty uh, order on our body, and we've got to have the right balance of minerals. And what what you've got is an interesting dynamic where when magnesium status is strong, you're going to minimize the oxidative stress. But if copper deficiency begins to present itself, it doesn't matter how much magnesium you've got. You can't regulate the, the iron and the oxygen. And then you've got a uh, sort of a, a runaway train. And I think that's where a lot of people find themselves now is this um, chronic oxidative stress that um, is playing out principally in the whole dynamic of metabolic syndrome. Maybe in our ongoing conversations, we can kind of tease that apart because it's a a huge issue affecting 40% of people over 60 around the world, not just here in the States. And so it's, it's important that people understand what the origin of that whole dynamic is. Yeah, I recently debated a, a mainstream cardiologist. Yeah. And one of the central points of my disagreement with him was the, the extent to which humans today, at least in the United States, based on the data that I'm seeing, are metabolically unwell. And I showed him <laughs> two pieces of data. Looking at, well, yeah, 90, 90 some, 90 plus percent, right? Yeah, right. If, if you look at any of the indicators right. Right. of metabolic dysfunction, whether it's low HDL, high triglycerides, high waist circumference, you know, high blood pressure, right. uh, you know, and, and fasting insulin is not even on that list, which would have perhaps be the most <laughs> sensitive indicator of, of insulin right. sense of insulin dysfunction right. or metabolic dysfunction, you know, 90 plus percent of the U S population. And they define in that study, they say optimal metabolic health is defined as having none of these things. And I think that that's true, that, that if you really want to look at humans who are optimally metabolically healthy in the United States, it's a very small number. And that is crazy because right. it should not be 90% that are unwell. It should be 90% that are well. So exactly. we have an epidemic of metabolic dysfunction to varying degrees. And I think that his perspective is the perspective that is carried by much of Western medicine, which is that a very small percentage of people or a very, you know, much less than I would estimate are metabolically unwell. So how can metabolic dysfunction be at the root of, in this case, my conversation with him was centered on atherosclerosis. But as you and I know, and as many of the listeners will know, metabolic dysfunction is something connected with all sorts of chronic illness in humans. So this is very interesting that the magnesium plays a key role here too. And I think many people have heard that magnesium deficiency is common but I've never heard it described in the way you do. So this is very unique and interesting that if other pieces of the equation are imbalanced, you will not hold on to magnesium. And many things can cause us to lose magnesium. All sorts of stressors, which are common in our lives, can cause us to consume magnesium. And so that it really is, I don't know. I mean, is it a triangle of magnesium, iron, and copper? Is there another point to this geometrical shape? Well, there's, there's a reason why I have a triangle behind me. No. And and it's actually a, it's a uh, picture of Egyptian healing. It's a very very cool picture. And what you can't see are the onks that are surrounding the, the whole poster. And what I didn't realize, I just assumed that when I was looking at the poster, well, the onks must be made of gold. No, they're made of brass. Mm-hmm. And brass, of course, is made of copper. And uh, so the the Egyptians were very much into copper. Um, I think copper's at the top. I really do, and I and I think you've got a 
horse race between magnesium and iron. And so I've had the, the good fortune over the last 15 years to read 10,000 articles. Probably t- more than more articles than 10,000 doctors have read, you know, because <laughs> you're, you're just too busy. You don't have, don't have the time. But, but the thing is, um, I've read one article, one article by William Wiglicki. It was like in 2016, something like that. He's a, he's a famous uh, cardiologist. At, uh, he started out at Harvard, and then he ended up at, at uh, George Washington University when he started focusing on magnesium. Harvard said, get out of here. You know, they just didn't want him, they didn't want him around. That's, that's a true story. I mean, it's just wow. a, it's an amazing story. But um, in that article, he talked about how there is a relationship between magnesium and iron. And if iron gets the upper hand, you do lose magnesium. The only article I've ever read where he, he actually put it in writing in black and white. But it, it makes so much sense intuitively when you understand what the, the sensitivity of magnesium is to oxidative stress. And so it's just the kinase enzymes are all built with magnesium. And as soon as they start firing off, you're losing magnesium right into the toilet. It's going right into your urine. How many enzymes in the human body use magnesium, Morley? <laughs> oh, um, thousands, probably. Yes. So, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I don't. <laughs> I'm. I'm not a watch guy, but <clears throat> I love the watches that have all the internal workings that you yeah. can see. Oh, sure. Yeah. The little dials and the right. and the pulleys and the cogs and I don't even know the right. names of these things. Right. <clears throat> and that's to me, that's a that's a metaphor for human biochemistry. And you have, I mean, in a watch, you might have hundreds of little tiny things that are moving. Right. But when I think about human biochemistry, I think, okay, if one of those little cogs is off, mm-hmm. it can affect the whole system. Well, imagine a deficiency of something like magnesium, and we'll talk about copper in a moment, yeah. that can affect thousands of enzymes in the human body. Yeah that watch is not going to be able to keep time properly. How no. can the human body function <clears throat> when it is that deficient in something that runs or is essential or at least involved in the formation of so many of these enzymes? So that's very interesting. Like just, it's a central piece of our biochemistry. Let's talk about copper because this is something that I haven't spoken about much on the podcast, but it's something that is fascinating to me. Yeah. Why do you think how how prevalent is copper deficiency? How do we measure it? And we'll circle back to how we measure magnesium deficiency if we can. Sure. sure. And then what's going on with copper? My skin is glowing. Check out this review on skin, hair, and nails from Heart and Soil Supplements. Gypsy says, I decided on this one mostly for my hair after living vegetarian, then vegan for many years, going through trauma and stress. My hair went through a mega loss, thin badly. My nails grew, but just felt thin and split and broke easily. My skin has always been good, smooth, and clean. Although now with skin hair and nails from Heart and Soil Supplements, it glows in capitals. Yes, I totally noticed the difference, mostly in nails. They have never been so strong. My skin is glowing way more. My hair feels healthier and is growing in length. I am a believer. Check out Skin Hair and Nails from Heart and Soil Supplements, guys. The interesting thing about this collagen supplement from us is that it contains liver and also that it contains bone marrow, but the collagen in here is unique. 
It's trachea and scapula cartilage. So it's full spectrum collagen, hyaline cartilage, and there are unique growth factors in the trachea. I mean, how many of us are actually eating trachea? There are unique growth factors in trachea that have been studied for wound healing by John Pruden. So this is a very unique form of collagen. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of traditional collagens. They're mostly hoof and hide collagen. And the problem with that is that it's low quality collagen, it's not hyaline cartilage, and they're from Chilean and Argentinian farms. And if you actually look at the analysis of some of these collagen powders, they're pretty darn high in heavy metals. So all of our supplements are from New Zealand, they're all in glass bottles, and we don't have the problem of heavy metals because our cows are regeneratively raised, grass-fed, grass-finished. The problem in Chile and Argentina is they're kind of doing like clustered animal agriculture, but calling it grass-fed. So the quality of the cow matters, which is why Hardened Soil will always source from New Zealand and Australia. I've been there personally, I've seen these farms. They're some of the most scenic farms in the world. That's what goes into our desiccated organs. You can find us at heartandsoil.co. Our mission is to help you reclaim your birthright to radical optimal health. Back to the podcast. So um, it was about May of 2020 when I renamed what COVID stood for. Okay. COV stands for Coppers Vanished. And ID stands for Irons Dysregulated. Okay. Now, what, what the average person and what most practitioners don't know is those two minerals were duking it out and have been since 2020. And um, what, what you probably don't know, or maybe you do, I, I don't want to be presumptuous, but the spike protein that we've all been so preoccupied with is homologous to a critical iron hormone called hepcidin. Hmm. And hepcidin is a negative regulator and a negative regulator of iron. And ceruloplasmin, the, the copper protein that uh, more people need to know about, uh, is the positive regulator. So think of it this way. <clears throat> think of ceruloplasmin being your mom and hepcidin being a SWAT team. Okay. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's the role that copper plays in the body to regulate. What you've got is you've got 21% of the air we breathe, 21% is a poison. It's called oxygen. We can't live without it, but we can't age without it either because it's the oxidative stress that ages us. That's the work of Denham Harmon from the, the 1950s. Um, and so, so we've got this uh, master pro-oxidant called iron, number one element on planet Earth. 36% of the Earth's composition is iron. Wow. And, and then we have the second most reactive element on the planet. After fluorine gas, oxygen is the second most reactive element. Ozone is number three for the, for the folks who are trying to connect the dots. And so we have, we have number one element, number two reactive element, and they create rust, and they're regulated by copper. And so you've got this element that is really the Achilles heel of the body. So <clears throat> let's put it in context. Um, a nutrient capsule has 1,000 milligrams in it. 
Well, one tenth of that is a hundred milligrams, and that's how much iron, that's how that's how much copper we have in our body. Mm-hmm. Hundred milligrams is like it's a joke, and we have five capsules of iron, so five thousand milligrams of iron. And so, in the world of traditional Chinese medicine, we have copper is the general, referred to as the general, and iron is referred to as the foot soldier, or the grunt. Hmm. You don't have to be in the military to know that generals are more important than grunts, but generals also have a lot more stars on their shoulder, right? What are the stars made of? Brass. And what is brass made of? Copper. And so to really understand what's going on in the human body, picture the Battle of the Bulge without patent. It's a very different story. And that's playing out. And I think the copper issue, Paul, I think we've got a real serious pandemic, a true pandemic with the lack of copper. In large part, because I think there are three elements in our environment that are converging on our uh, bioavailable copper status. It's glyphosate Uh. in farming. It's a perfect copper chelator. We have a high fructose diet. And I'm not trash talking fruit. Don't get worried. But, But people need to understand that fructose is everywhere in the food system now. And it's not our friend. And all you got to do is pick up any article that Rick Johnson uh, in Denver has has written. It's absolutely amazing what it's doing to our metabolism. And then I think the third assault is fourth-generation antibiotics that are designed to kill the bacteria. And and what are mitochondria called? Purple bacteria. And they're affecting our, our mitochondrial status. And so these three forces are converging. And... That 100 milligrams of copper is under attack. And in fact, uh, Maria Linder, who was a famous copper researcher, she just passed away last fall. Um, <clears throat> she went on record as saying that she thinks that the average American now has 70 milligrams of copper. So let's, let's put that into context. So ideal, ideal body temperature, 98.6. A 4% differential, take it up to 102, we got a fever, right? That's a 4% differential. And you know how bad you feel when you have a fever. So 30% loss of copper is eight times the impact of a fever. And people don't realize the reach of copper and the copper enzymes that regulate our body. Copper creates energy. Copper clears exhaust. Copper connects everything. 45% of our tissue is connective tissue. 45% of our cells are connective tissue. Well, you can't connect collagen and elastin unless you have lysyl oxidase. It's an obligate enzyme to bring the connective tissue together. Uh, Colors, everything gets colored with melanin. It's not just our hair color, eye color, skin color. Think of the think of the colors of the organs that you studied when you were in medical school. They weren't white, were they? No. No, they were very vibrant colors. Yeah. And, and what's absolutely amazing is that that melanin needs a copper enzyme to make it work, called tyrosinase. What's one of the most dominant chemicals in food processing? Tyrosinase inhibitors. Because huh. they worry about 
they worry about shelf life more than they worry about human life. And that's something that people need to understand. And so, and then just the whole process of communication. The, 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 the number, we're talking about enzymes being regulated by magnesium. Depending upon the author, there's anywhere between 43 and 4,700 hormones. What are they? They're signaling peptides, mm-hmm. just like our phone. Wait, those signaling peptides don't work unless they're activated. Did you know that? That, that what the body produces is called a pro-hormone, and it needs to be turned into an active hormone, and there's only one enzyme that does it, and it's copper-dependent, and it's mm. called the PAM enzyme. And so do you know anybody who has hormone dysregulation? No so many people have hormone dysregulation today. And insulin resistance, yeah. resistance, cortisol resistance. Guess where that resistance is coming from? Lack of activation. And I don't know whether you know Robert Lustig. He's a very good writer. And uh, he wrote in a book he wrote in 2013 that we require twice as much insulin to clear the same amount of glucose as we did 30 years previously in the early 1980s. Stop and think about that. That is a staggering statistic. You're talking about the uh, fasting insulin rate. It should be around four. Most people are around under 10. And so we as a species now, we're overly sensitive to sugars and we are too dependent on insulin now. And the one of the most striking things I learned about copper was by a famous copper researcher. He's still alive. His name is Leslie Clouvet. wrote an amazing article just last fall uh, on chronic copper deficiency. And he points out that the people who are the most copper starved on the planet are called Menke's disease children. Mm. There's, there's, no, there's no copper. They, they, they die before they're three years of age. According to the research and according to the pediatric textbook he was referring to, and this article was written in 1986, he said that the the people who are most glucose sensitive, most glucose intolerant, are Menke's children. Well, what does that tell us? It means that copper plays an obligate role in helping to clear out the sugar before we call in the big guns called insulin. And what's missing in that 30 years from 83 to 2013? Farming changed, food processing changed. And so people don't realize the power that this general plays. And there's only a little bit of it. But when it's MIA, it has a huge impact on our physiology. Do you think that part of the pervasive copper deficiency could be a dietary deficiency also? I just don't think there's a lot of bioavailable copper in most people's diets today? Well, there isn't. And, and what's a little unsettling, uh, and, and you as a uh, the, uh, carnivore extraordinaire, uh, <laughs> uh, what's important to understand is that if the copper is not in the soil, it's not going to get in the animal. And what, what came to light uh, several years ago for me was uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Ben Edwards, down in uh, Lubbock, Texas, uh, was working with some farmers, you know, cattle farmers in Texas who wanted to put out a really 
uh, high-end uh, supplement based on uh, beef liver. And they did something that no one had ever done before. They, they did needle biopsies of the cattle liver. And they were shocked to find out that there was very little copper in their animals. They were, they were chagrined. And then they called me up and they said, what's, what's missing? I said, have you done a soil sample test? Do you know if the copper's in the soil that's getting into the grass? If it's not getting into the grass, it can't get into the animal. And so you're asking the absolute right question. Is it missing in the food system? Absolutely missing in the food system. And what people need to understand is that this farming chemical called glyphosate Roundup, um, it does chelate minerals. That's a proven fact. And, and Don Huber at uh, Purdue University wrote a book just last year, uh, December of 22. Uh, it was studying Africa, farming in Africa, but it was really, it applied to the world. And what I didn't know and what, what's laid out in the book is the fact that these minerals are being chelated on a logarithmic scale. And so glyphosate's pulling out copper a billion times faster than it's pulling out magnesium. It's pulling out copper a thousand times faster than it's pulling out zinc. And the challenge we've got is when numbers get that big, we, we can't relate to it. We, we lose sight of the significance. So there was a time, probably when I was about your age, I could run an eight-minute mile. And, and about that time, my youngest son, my younger son, uh, when he was in college, he ran a 402 mile. That's fast. That's fast. And, you know, I called him up, said, you're going to go for it. And he said, no. He said, I could work for months and not shave those two seconds off. But his old man went to the gym to see what it felt like to run a four-minute mile. I almost killed myself. And, and then when I realized that the machine was doing all the work and I was just holding on for dear life, but that was twice as fast. A thousand times faster? We can't really grasp it because of the order of magnitude of it. And we're, we're being exposed to these chemicals like a high fructose diet. The, the part you may not know, Paul, is that fructose becomes... Uh, sorbitol in, the, in its metabolism. Well, sorbitol is a very noxious chemical and it chelates 97% of the copper in the body. Mm -hmm. And so suddenly you've got this magnet that's being created by the addition of a, of a sugar that's twice as sweet as table sugar, but it's 10 times more destructive because of the properties that are found in fructose. And then we go on to produce uric acid. And uric acid is the billowing black smoke coming out of um, the mitochondria who can't keep up with the energy production. And so you've got ATP becoming ADP, becoming AMP, becoming IMP, becoming hypoxanthine, becoming xanthine, becoming uric acid. And, and the, the mitochondria are trying to cleave phosphate at every possible chance they can to make energy, knowing that it's a one-way ticket into the uric acid. And, and that's like, oh my gosh. And it's, that, that one element is everywhere in the diet. And no one's thinking about it. A couple of things 
I think about with all that, um, your discussion about the nutrients in the soil reminds me of how important the quality of the foods I'm eating is. Absolutely. And I was recently in Australia looking at regenerative farming there. Oh, yeah. Because Australia does regenerative farming better than anywhere I've ever seen in the world. And I would love to test the soils there, but that looks like some pretty darn healthy soil to me. It's never been monocropped. Right. Never been glyphosate sprayed on a lot of that soil. And, and there are farms in the United States that also do regenerative agriculture, but Australia and New Zealand do this very well. Right. In Australia and New Zealand, grass feeding, grass finishing, regenerative agriculture, rotational grazing of cattle is the standard. Right. And in farms like that, where cows are eating grass from right next to the sea mm-hmm. that have never Absolutely. been monocropped, I would imagine that without spraying glyphosate on that soil, that that is going to have more copper. Because what I'm thinking of when I hear your, your stuff is the, the value of liver in the human diet is what I think about. Because of the connection also between vitamin A and copper and the, the need for vitamin A. So when I think, okay, like humans are deficient in vitamin A, probably, we're definitely deficient in copper. It's really kind of saying to me, we're not eating enough liver, something we would have eaten historically. I mean, Absolutely. liver has got to be liver from cows who are raised properly, grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised on good soil that's never been monocropped, right? that the soil isn't depleted because we know that monocrop agriculture, and what I mean by that is growing plants, growing like a that's factory right. farm of plants. Right. Cows that are eating grass, it's never been had that done to it. That's going to be a very healthy liver. That's going to be very bioavailable copper for people. And that's becoming more and more rare in the population. It's why I'm proud of what we do at the companies that I'm building, you know, Hardened Soil and, and now this company Lineage that I'm building. You know, we're only sourcing from regenerative farms because we're actually trying to get this highest quality food into humans, the, these organs. And, and I just think like, oh, wow, liver is so important for copper as well. It's never talked about. But I love this discussion that like, and yet another reason that truly high quality meat, and there's not really a lot of copper in the muscle meat, guys. No. It's mostly in the liver. Truly high quality liver and muscle meat from regenerative farmed animals is valuable for humans. It's something we need. And this, this pervasiveness of glyphosate has got to be affecting our copper status. I don't think we're eating enough liver. And I mean, I get it. I'm traveling right now. As you said, as we talked about, I'm in, I'm in California on my way back from Australia. I'm jet lagged and I've been going all over the place. I cannot find liver here. Thankfully I brought some hardened soil supplements (laughs) with me, but I'm going to go, I'm going to go to a place today, a butcher, and I'm going to try and find liver because I, I want to eat a little bit of fresh liver every day because of this. And I just think, yeah, it just makes me think about the quality of the soil and the benefits of regenerative agriculture and the importance of helping people understand that there's a difference between grass-fed, grass-finished cow's liver and a a not grass-fed, grass-finished cow's liver. The other thing I just want to mention, because it's come up a couple of times, is I have a question for you and and, and my perspective. When I look at Robert Lustig's work and Rick Johnson's work, um, and I've had to have, I've, I've tried to have conversations with Robert Lustig, but he's been unwilling. Um, I see a real difference in the way that fructose affects human health. And, and you can tell me if you disagree with this, but I, I want to try and clarify this point for people so they're not confused. Sure. Yeah. I see a real difference in the way that fructose in our diets affects human health when it's in something like high fructose corn syrup, as opposed to fruit and honey. And, and you, you alluded to this, but I just want to make sure we clarify this position. And Absolutely. again, feel free to disagree with me if you, if you do. 
Um, when I look at Rick Johnson's work, I see the same thing. He, he's never actually said that he feels like fruit is bad for humans. He's, he's mostly aiming at, at fructose and processed soft drinks and things like this. And uh, again, I'd love to have some conversations with him to clarify his position, but I think that there must be, there must be something going on. I think there's something uniquely bad. My suspicion, my hypothesis, is there's something uniquely bad about high fructose corn syrup, which makes sense. When you make fructose from glucose in corn, you have to isomerize it. You know, you have to, you're making, you're, you're doing something weird as opposed to fructose that naturally occurs in a fruit. Now, I don't think you'd want to eat, if you could avoid glyphosate on your fruit, that's a good thing as well. But do you, is it, is it your position that fructose in fruit is a problem when you're saying a high fructose diet? Because I mean, morally, maybe I'm guilty of this. Maybe I'm, maybe I need to reconsider this. I eat a high fructose diet. (laughs) I eat honey and I eat fruit. Um, but is it, do you think that there's a difference? Are you aware? Is there a difference between fruit and honey and the honey I get, I, I get glyphosate free and organic fruit and high fructose corn syrup. Or are you, are you very concerned about fructose in any form for humans? No, it's a great question. People are very worried about my, my stance. Um, no, orders of magnitude, high fructose diet is devastating to human metabolism. Fructose that we find in, in fruit and honey, things like that. Um, go back in time. Let's get let's get ancestral about it. Our ancestors had access to fruit on a seasonal basis. We have a very different food system today than existed 200 years ago. You know, our, our ancestors might have had a small orchard, and they might have gone to a, a neighbor's orchard to get their fruit. But they didn't have ad libitum access to fruit. What so about think, the guys that were equatorial? Well, that, that's fair. No, you're absolutely right. No, that's, that's a valid point. And so, again, I don't, I don't want to get um, people anxious about the fruit. The, the, what I think is important for us to do is make sure people realize that there's nothing natural about a high fructose diet. As you said, it's a very different chemical. I've, I read an article recently that said, the author said, you know, if fructose, high fructose was natural, I should be able to squeeze an ear of corn and what I get is the fructose. And that's right. Not what it's, it, it is isomerized. It's mixed with hydrochloric acid or sulfur. Exactly. So it's a very different chemical. And I think what's important for people to do is you, you want to eat as seasonally as you can, eat as locally as you can. Eat as ancestrally as you can, which is what you're all about. And I, I think the issue we've got worldwide, and I'm very aware of of the uh, regenerative farming in, in Australia, because a number of the people that run my program are based in Australia. And, and one of one of the uh, the key members, uh, Christian Kershaw, who's in Brisbane, uh, she's totally into regenerative farming. But even with all of that focus, we've got to still test the soil, even with the, the difference in farming philosophy and execution down under, uh, historically, those soils have not been the most minimally rich. But I think with regenerative farming, they are changing that and they're, they're really shifting it. So I think people can relax about the, the fruit in their diet, but be really phobic about the high fructose uh, component that they might be exposed to that they're not even thinking about in the drinks, in the packaged goods. And, and I think people who are following you with any level of intensity and, and intention, they're not going to be eating that kind of food anyway. So I, oh, think, you're, I think you're on safe ground around that. 
Okay, good. Thank you for that. Yeah, I wonder because there is there is a tendency in the nutritional medical science world toward reductionism. Oh, and yeah. people people will say fructose is fructose. And I, yeah. I, I think these are interesting conversations. And I've had conversations with people on my podcast about this. And I think it's just a, an interesting nuance to try and differentiate so that we can all understand it. And yeah, I mean, I've, I've shifted my perspective on this in the past as well. So it's it's learning. But yeah, this this pervasive deficiency of copper is interesting. And we're connected with glyphosate. Let's let's ask this question, Morley. Is there a way that I can measure my copper and know my copper status? Or do we just assume and try to get more copper in our diet or supplement? I mean, is, is there a test? I mean, is it, is it serum copper? Is it ceruloplasmin? Is there any way for me to know the copper status? If it's, if it's the general, it seems like it's important, right? It's, it's very important. And um, there, there actually are, believe it or not, five really sensitive tests for bioavailable copper status. Okay. How many of them are allowed by the Food and Drug Administration? Zero. None. None. Ah. Zero. And so what we've got, I, I, I cobbled together existing blood markers uh, and called it the full Monty iron panel. And so we look at magnesium in the red blood cell. We look at, at uh, zinc. We look at a number of different iron markers. You know, we look at ferritin. We look at... Um, Serum iron. We look at obviously look at hemoglobin, uh, looking at percent saturation. But then on the on the copper side, we're looking at serum copper, mm -hmm. and we're looking at ceruloplasmin. Right now, here's the catch, though. And, and it took me a long time to understand the distinction in the literature, because they were talking about level and activity of the copper enzymes. And, and what I've came to realize is that level refers to the height, how much of that protein or that enzyme is there. Activity is really referring to its IQ. Right. And so how tall are you, Paul? 5'9". Wish I were okay. a little bit taller. Wish no, I were a baller. No, okay. And so, and so I'm six foot. Uh -huh. So then I must be smarter than you because I'm three inches taller, right? Well, you're clearly no, smarter than me. No, 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 no. But, that's, I know, I know. but that's, that's the game that they play right. in, in, in testing is they get you to think that the height of the element is what's driving its activity, and it's not. Because my, my roommate in college, he was 5'6". He was the smartest guy on the, on the campus. And he just like ran circles around everybody. And so the thing is, when we're measuring ceruloplasmin in a blood test, we're measuring the height. We're not allowed to measure the activity. You can go to India. You can go to Iceland. There are a few uh, countries around the world where they will do it for you, but it's not easy to get those results. And so what we've got is ideal copper should be 100. Serum copper. Serum copper. Mm -hmm. Ideal serum ceruloplasmin should be 30. These mm -hmm. are not my numbers. We're, we're talking about penetrating research that was done back in 1960 by Stern, Lieb, and, and uh, a number of, of uh, scientists. Now, what you'll get a kick out of, the research was done at Bell Laboratories in upstate New York. Oh, wow. Studying human copper metabolism. Go, go figure. But what emerged from that research was a ratio 
of copper to ceruloplasm of 3.33. Okay. And what I've learned is that when the number is above 3.33, the copper is a little higher than it should be, ceruloplasm is a little lower than it should be, it's a, it's a, a thumbnail, if you will, that there's inflammation in the system. And if the number is below 3.33, it means that there just isn't enough copper in their diet mm. because ceruloplasmin will rise in the presence of copper and ceruloplasmin will become more active in the presence of more copper. And it's one of its unique properties. The other marker that we've got, Paul, that's kind of intriguing, and I, and I just added it recently, um, is uric acid. So, you know, people have said, oh, as long as it's under seven, I'm okay. Well, I was just recently at a meeting where uh, Rick Johnson was speaking, and I had actually been to his lab in, in Denver earlier in the year, in, in uh, end of April, and we had about three or four hours of hoedown about what's going on with his research and what I knew about copper. Uh, I, I actually identified 14 places, 14 places where copper could prevent or slow down the production of uric acid. Mm. Let's just say I got his attention. Wow, but, cool. But um, at this meeting, he was chatting to a, a number of us who had, had come to his talk, and he said, you know, if, if your uric acid is around five, that's, that's a good uric acid for an adult. He said, but even at a five, you're going to start to put on weight. He said, if you want a really ideal uric acid, it should be a four. And so that I took note of that. Well, what I did was I developed a ceruloplasmin to uric acid ratio. Mm. So think of ceruloplasmin as a, a poor man's indication of copper status, especially in the mitochondria, right? And so that should be 30. Uric acid should be four. So we should be, ratio should be 7.5. And what I'm beginning to use now is to see when I see clients with different symptoms now, is it being driven by the lack of energy or the excess exhaust that's being produced in their system? And again, it's, it's directional. It's not definitive because we don't have access to the definitive markers because of the way the system is stacked against us. I just want to clarify the blood work stuff. It's interesting. I've talked about my blood work multiple times on the podcast. My uric acid is consistently below four, That's even true. when I eat, you know, lots of honey and fruit. Yeah. Um, I do not think that I have gotten ceruloplasmin in a while, but I'll go back and um, I'll check it. <clears throat> but you said, I just want to make sure I understood this. If you have, when you consume more copper, your ceruloplasmin goes up? The ceruloplasmin will rise in the presence of more copper in the diet. Uh -huh. So the so the ratio you said if the ratio between the copper, copper what will the serum copper do if you eat more copper will that go up also or will that go no it, the the body will start to regulate itself mm -hmm. and th what's happened is um, a lot of confusion around copper as you well know mm -hmm. uh, the, the meme that runs medicine is you're anemic. And you're copper toxic. Right. The truth is just the opposite. That's very interesting. Right. Absolutely. The truth is the opposite. And uh, what has been known since 1928, a study done in March at the University of Wisconsin 
me at the University of uh, Kentucky. What we've known since 1928 is a, a low copper diet will cause a high iron liver. And <clears throat> that, that was established, you know, almost a century ago. And it was in 2021 when Kim and Gonzalez studied 13 genes, four that related to iron, four that related to zinc, five that related to copper. And they wanted to know, of those 13 genes, do any of them change in the, in the face of copper deficiency? Only one gene fired up. It's called ferritin light chain. And that's the, that's the gene that runs iron storage in the liver and the spleen. And ferritin light chain is very different than ferritin heavy chain because heavy chain requires copper, light chain, not so much. Uh -huh. And so the, what they were able to prove in 2021 is that Hart et al. and McCarg et al. were absolutely right back in 1928, but they were able to prove it genetically that there is an obligate response genetically to a low copper environment that forces higher, much higher expression of ferritin light chain, which then enables the iron storage to take place. This has been the, the tragedy, Paul, is this has been going on in the US, the UK, and Canada for about 70 years because they started to change farming. They started to add iron filings to the food system in 1941. Oh my gosh, cereals. Cereals, absolutely. Like, I remember total cereal growing up. You could use a magnet and pull the absolutely. iron filings. Like, That's exactly right. And, 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 the, and the research of Jamie Collins at the University of Florida in Gainesville is very, very important. 2016, 2018, 2020, where he is able to prove by feeding rodents a comparably based diet that we would have, average American, that level of iron that we take in our cereal and, and elsewhere in our supplements suppresses copper metabolism, basically shuts it off. And if you don't know about that, if you don't know that that turning off that copper is then going to allow iron to rise in the organs, well, that becomes this, it, it's, a, it's a light bulb moment to realize, wait a minute, that means that Jerome Sullivan, uh, who's a famous pathologist uh, who had the iron heart hypothesis, that means he's right, that it's iron accumulation that's causing the, the rising oxidative stress that's causing the metabolic breakdown in this organ, that organ, this pathway, another pathway. And that's, that's what really is behind the, the root cause protocol, is to begin to lower the footprint of iron, increase the footprint of copper, and begin to bring boundaries around the oxidative stress in the body. And let's try to not lose so much magnesium. That's fascinating. It's a very unique way of thinking about it, which is why this conversation is so exciting. So let's just summarize for people at this point, or at least give them a tool here. You said red blood cell magnesium. Do you think that's a good way? Because most people can get, if you go to your doctor or you go right. to your online provider, you can, it, red blood cell magnesium is not terribly hard. It's no. not impossible for people to get. Is no. that a good indicator of magnesium status? Is there anything better? Do you, do you know who Charles Poliquin is? Yes, I do. <laughs> okay. He won't work with someone until their mag RBC is up at six, six or six point five, mm -hmm. and, and and I understand why because it's going to optimize performance. But you can drink a bucket full of magnesium, and you won't budge the 
MAG-RBC until you start to get the iron out of the body. Mm. You've got to do phlebotomies. You've got to bring in iron regulation. You've got to bring bioavailable copper into the system because it's that iron that's blocking the magnesium uptake in the red blood cell. Iron blocking magnesium uptake. In the, okay, interesting. Now, this is a question for you about magnesium. Are you aware of data suggesting that we can do transdermal absorption of magnesium? Oh, yeah, sure. Okay, so like I, I, have a, I have a magnesium oil, which is just a magnesium solution that I rub on my stomach and my chest at night before I go to sleep. Is this, I've, I've seen things on this, but I wanted to ask you, can I get this magnesium through the skin? What do you think? Well, I think it's possible. I just wanted Absolutely to know possible. what you were yeah. aware because you read more of the science on this than well, me. You're, you're a surfer too, right? Oh, I know. You hang, out, you hang out in the ocean, right? Yeah. Guess what the ocean is? It's this teeming magnesium bath all day long, right? I, that's why I like being in there, I'm sure. Yeah. I'm going to go in there right after this podcast. I, I'm sure. Um, and, and the thing is, of course, we're, think, of the, think of the absorption capacity of our skin. It's the largest organ in our body. And, and, and you think we're not designed to be able to absorb these critical nutrients? Of course we are. There, there's really four different kinds of magnesium that we can focus on. Ideally, we should have magnesium in our water. Well, the, the most magnesium-rich water on the planet is in Poland. Mm-hmm. Whether you knew that or not. I so didn't. Go, go to a Polish market. They've, they're going to have a half a dozen different brands of, of Polish uh, magnesium water. Just pick up some and, and pick up the one that has a high amount of bicarbonate too, because that's going to really enhance the absorption. So magnesium water would be your start. And you can make it on your own. You can use club soda and you know, milk of magnesium, but it's easier just to go buy it. Second form is magnesium in the food. Mm-hmm. Anything that's green has chlorophyll is supposed to have magnesium in the center, right? So that's what our ancestors relied on. And then I was sort of disheartened a number of years ago when I learned that the reason why broccoli is green is because they spray it with nitric oxide. It turns <laughs> green. And I'm like, oh, no, this is just wrong. And so um, we should be getting magnesium from our food. But but your opening volley is, has the food system changed? Are we not getting supplied enough? And that's true. Third form is what you're talking about right now, transdermal either Epsom salt or magnesium chloride oil. It's amazingly, um, it rejuvenates the body. And then your fourth option are the supplements, you know? And I think the two most absorbed are glycinate and malate, but they're about 25 different brands. You know, orotate's really popular in Europe. Gluconate's very popular in England. Um, Threonate is very popular because people think that's the only one that crosses the BBB, but... All magnesium does, but really, okay, yeah, but it's a it's a really good form, and so people just need to know that there are these varied uh, options, and that our ancestors had exposure to all four of them on a regular basis. When I think about magnesium, I also think about the bioavailability of it, and um, people don't always realize, but meat has a good amount of magnesium. There's about a hundred milligrams of magnesium in a pound of red meat, so you can get pretty good amount of magnesium just eating meat as well. Um, I've always wondered about the bioavailability. You know, I was having this conversation with my friends yesterday and, and feel free to let me know if you disagree. She was asking me about chocolate and <laughs> I recently did some content on chocolate because there was a consumer reports right. uh, 
test and it looked at heavy metals in chocolate. It looked at lead and cadmium and right. uh, for whatever reason, cacao and many seeds tend to accumulate heavy metals. And I said, I'm not sure that the magnesium in cacao is very bioavailable because of the oxalates and the phytic acids. So right. when I think about magnesium in food, because this is a question I get commonly, I'm an advocate for a diet that's meat and organs, fruit, honey, and raw dairy as a basis. Mm -hmm. And then people can add what works for them. Sure. But as a baseline, I'm, I'm a fan of this animal-based diet. There's no greens on an animal-based diet. People say, where do you get your magnesium? And I say, actually, I did this on chronometer and I showed this orange juice, uh, coconut water, milk, and meat in a day. And I was getting, you know, over 400 milligrams of magnesium, perhaps. I, and then maybe I'll spray it on my body as well with the spray and go in the ocean. That's how I get my magnesium. But I always wonder with the foods, like um, with, uh, with chocolate specifically, like if that magnesium is very bioavailable. And then to get any specific, any significant dose of magnesium from chocolate, you're also going to get that with lead and cadmium. So it's like, right. it's all of these calculations. I, I think that um, I was the most magnesium deficient that I ever have been when I was a raw vegan. For anyone that doesn't know, I was a raw vegan for about seven um, horrible months. Uh, I didn't know they were horrible at the time, but I had really, really bad gas. And I actually, the, the woman I was dating at the time broke up with me because I was a <laughs> vegan. It was pretty funny. She probably did the best thing she ever could have for me. Thank you no, for that, wherever you are. <laughs> yeah, wake me up from my crazy vegan slumber. But I was very magnesium deficient during that time because I was thinking I was going to get magnesium from almonds. And even though right. I was sprouting the almonds, I just don't know how much of that magnesium in the almonds was bioavailable because of the seed form of magnesium. So that's interesting, but it, it's very encouraging to think that the, that the, the dermal magnesiums work oh, yeah. because, because there's no, it's just a magnesium spray. The supplements I think can work. There's, 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 um, the only thing I always worry about with supplements is contaminants and excipients in the supplements, you know, binders, the quality of the supplement matters so much, just like the quality of meat matters, but meat and organs and, and animal foods and actual food can be a good source of magnesium too. Um, yeah, well, I'm just going to, I weigh 167, 168 pounds right now. So 170. So you should be getting five milligrams per pound body weight. Okay. And so that's even more than I'm getting now. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. what I'm thinking is that you're, you're getting, you're, you're keying in on, on 400 as being some kind of magic amount. We need Mildred Seelig was the one who came up with that formula. She, mm -hmm. did, it in, she did it in kilograms. She said 10 10 kilograms, 10 milligrams per kilogram. Mm -hmm. And I just converted it to us units, uh, five milligrams per pound body weight. And so you're, you're going to need uh, about 750 to really, and you're, and you're, and that's before we deal with the stress of your life. Right. Well, you're wow. you're a, a high end guy doing high end activities. You're challenging the status quo. You're traveling all over. It's like, then you're laying on more stress. So you need more magnesium to make up for the ongoing burn rate. It means I need to go surfing more and spend more time in the ocean. <laughs> Believe me, no, this is a priority for me. When I'm in Costa Rica, I surf every single day, almost That's without fail. Like, yeah, That's I'm in there amazing. all the time. Yeah, I was talking to another friend about that. But yeah, it's, so how do I, I mean, I guess that's just kind of the extra asterisk on my magnesium consumption, quote unquote, like how would I ever account for how much magnesium I could get through a spray or by going in the ocean? I think most people in listening to this podcast are not going to go in the ocean two hours a day like I might when I surf. Um, and the other thing about Costa Rica is I have a lot of body surface area exposed right. when I'm sure. in the ocean because I don't have even have a wetsuit. I just have my board shorts and I'm shirtless. So I have a lot of body mm -hmm. surface area getting exposed. But is there any way to any way to adjust the formula based on the spray? Like, 
I don't have you thought about this with like the transdermal magnesium? Like I'll go at mm. night, I'll do like 10 sprays and just rub this shit all over my body. Ten what does that mean? 10 sprays should translate to about 200 milligrams of magnesium. Wow. That's great. That's really encouraging actually. Yeah. So if, even if you did that a couple times a day, beginning, oh, there you of go. The day, beginning of the day, end of the day, you've got your bases covered with all your other food sources. That's very helpful. Thank you. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. I'm going to go spray some magnesium after this. Well, I'm going to go to the ocean, then I'm going <laughs> to spray some magnesium. The, the thing to know for anyone who might be spraying magnesium on your body is that um, if, if you are doing anything romantic with someone else, it tastes very strongly. So someone, if someone is kissing your neck or you're, you're if you're tasting the skin, it's going to taste like magnesium. So it's not a bad yeah. thing. It's just, it is what it is. That's the other catch effect. is people who tend to be iron toxic. That would be most of us on this planet now, but if you're iron toxic, you have the potential for being very sensitive to that spray. It's going hmm. to, it might trigger a histamine response. So people who are particularly sensitive to magnesium being sprayed on them, you know they're iron toxic. It's a real, it's a real good litmus test for what their iron status is. Interesting. And let's talk about iron briefly. We mentioned iron is a complex. We'll have to do a whole separate podcast on yeah, iron. And and I've talked about iron somewhat because I got interested in my iron status in the past. I've I wonder after listening to your stuff, I wonder if a lifetime of copper deficiency, or perhaps I just have a genetic predisposition to overly absorbing iron. Yeah. Obviously, there's a lot of iron in my diet. I eat a lot of meat and organs. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, but my ferritin was at times over 300. So okay. I did start doing phlebotomy. And, yeah. and, and now my ferritin is much lower. Um, I think it's 70 or 60 now. Um, and, and there are definitely ways to do phlebotomy, but it was interesting thinking like, what, how do I, you know, maybe get rid of, is this a lifetime of over avid consumption of iron and not enough copper elevating the ferritin light chain as we saw or what, but I did, I did phlebotomy and it's interesting, um, that it's lowered that. And then, so the, the, the labs that I looked at, and again, this is quite complex for people where the ferritin, the serum iron, the transferrin saturation, right. Um, and then I'm trying to think if there's anything else. What, what do you look at for iron? You look at ferritin, those transparent that serum iron. So let, let's walk people through the containers of iron. There's, yeah, yeah, please. There's, there's three of them in the body. The biggest container is a bucket. It's a bucket of iron, and it's called hemoglobin. Mm -hmm. And that's 70% of the iron in the body. If you throw in myoglobin in the muscle, that's another 10%. So we've got 80% of iron is tied up in these proteins that are carrying oxygen. They're dumber than a box of rocks. All they do is carry oxygen and then, of course, carry CO2 on the way back. But the, but the thing is, this enormous bucket of, of iron is in the hemoglobin. Then we have a teacup. The teacup of iron is about 10% of the iron in the body is tied up in a storage protein called ferritin. Now, are you standing or sitting? I'm sitting. Okay, good. Because I didn't want you to fall when I said that. Oh, uh, the, um, there's three forms of ferret, ferritin in the body. Okay? There's heavy chain, which is found principally in the heart and the kidney, but it's also found in the cells, but it's also found in the nucleus of the cells. Well, heavy chain is like an ATM machine. Put iron in, take it out. Put it in, take it out. And that function requires bioavailable copper. And the reason why it's called heavy chain is because copper is a heavy metal. Now, what if, if you want to go geek, 
start looking in your medical textbooks, and you'll see other references to other heavy proteins. Every one of them has a connection to copper. Hmm. So ferritin heavy chain is very different than, fer than ferritin light chain. And light chain, again, as we were talking about earlier, uh, relates to liver, spleen, principally. And then there's a third form of ferritin called secreted ferritin, and that's what shows up in a blood test, right? And we can thank Jacobs et al., 1972, British Medical Journal, for introducing us to serum ferritin. It's a very important pro storage protein because up until that time, everyone knew that hemoglobin was how you measured iron status because it was mm. the circulating iron, not the stored iron. Everything flipped in 1972, and all the optics went to storage, and let's forget about the circulating, which is, that was a tragedy uh, of biblical proportions. <clears throat> but here's the part that most people don't know about secreted ferritin. I like, I like to see it around 20. The bells go off for a woman at 150, off for a man at 300. And many years ago, I was having a conversation with Douglas Kell who's a world-renowned iron expert. He's got more, more initials than I have in my name. And um, I said, Dr. Kell, what's the ideal ferritin for a human being? <laughs> and you got to picture this very affable guy. He's my age with this wall of books behind him. And he smiles and he says, zero. I went, what? <laughs> and then he proceeded to say something that I'll never forget. He said, Morley, I want to make sure you understand this. The rising ferritin in the body is not a sign of iron vitality. It's a sign of organ pathophysiology. Do you understand that? I said, yes, sir, I do, because I've read many of your articles. One of his signature articles, Paul, is 2,400 footnotes. And what he's telling his, his peers and his, his uh, people who follow him, you're not just wrong about iron. You're dead wrong. And ferritin should not be obsessed over. And it turns out, I just learned recently, where does ferritin, the secreted form, the one that shows up in the blood, where does it actually originate? It originates in the spleen. And when the spleen is turning over two and a half million red blood cells a second, all day long, all night long, two and a half million red blood cells a second, it opens up the red blood cell and guess what comes out? Ferritin and a lot of glycated hemoglobin, right? And so, and a bunch of other stuff, obviously. But the but the the ferritin is coming out of the spleen. And my evolving thinking about ferritin is it's not it's not really telling us what's going on with iron. It's telling us what's going on with the spleen. It's a barometer for spleen. And here's the part that you're going to find absolutely unnerving is that this secreted uh, ferritin, this is according to people like Douglas Kell, Arosio, Moorwood. There's a dozen different articles that I've identified. Um, Torty and Torty, famous husband and wife team. Um, serum ferritin is empty shotgun shells. Hmm. The iron has already been discharged in the spleen, into the macrophage in the spleen. And what's coming out, what's being secreted, is an abridged form of light chain. It's missing 10 amino acids. 
And that's why it's called secreted ferritin, because ferritin is supposed to be inside our cells. It's not supposed to be in the blood. And so it's a very um, important thing for people to understand. And then the third bucket, so we've got the, we've got the bucket, we've got the teacup, and then we have a thimble. The thimble is 1% of the iron, and it's called serum iron, or sometimes total iron. But it's one of the most important irons to know because it's telling us what's the status of the recycling iron. Again, that's being turned over two and a half million times per second. And the iron gets discharged in the red pulp macrophages. I'm taking you back to your, your, your medical school physiology. Yeah, wow. And I won't test you on the, uh, the white pulp macrophage. We'll just do red pulp. Yeah. But, but the red pulp are intensely involved in this process. And they've got to keep track of what's happening to iron. And the iron leaves the macrophage through the doorway called ferroportin, iron doorway. And guess who the doorman is? It's a copper doorman that opens that doorway to let the iron out to get connected to transferrin, which is the transport protein for iron, that takes it down to the bone marrow. What's happening in the bone marrow? Well, they're making red blood cells at two and a half million times a second. And so that iron has got to get down there as fast as it can. And so <clears throat> copper is allowing the iron out and enabling the attachment to transferrin. It attaches to transferrin two and a half times faster in the presence of copper than it does without it. And so this, um, in a man, the serum, excuse me, serum iron should be about 120. In a woman, it should be about 100. And when you do a blood test, uh, it's easier for a guy because we don't have a menstrual cycle, right? And so if your serum iron is not at 120 and it's well below that, it means your recycling program is not efficient. That's mm. a good thing to know. For a woman, they've they've got to do their their blood test on day fifteen of their cycle, the midpoint, mm -hmm. and so they they have a more accurate indication. And so, depending upon where they are in their cycle, is going to have a massive impact on their iron status. Right. Right. I mean, it makes so much sense intuitively. And so, women who are postmenopausal, again, it's easy. It should be a hundred. But um, what you're going to find is a lot of women who are cycling, they might have their serum iron might be in the 20s or 30s. And, the, and a, uh, an aggressive uh, practitioner might say, you're anemic, when in fact they should be saying, why is it so low? And is there enough bioavailable copper in your body to regulate the movement, the, the recycling? And... Before we go to iron supplements and iron infusions, we should exhaust all possibilities of copper-rich foods, like you're talking about, and where appropriate, maybe some copper supplements. But the need to understand the copper side of the house is paramount. And so the iron markers are useful, but they can't be evaluated in the absence of understanding the copper side. And that's the mistake that's made in so many doctors' offices is they have no knowledge about what's happening with copper. Do you think there's a lot of iron deficiency that's misdiagnosed? Or should I say a lot of anemia that's misdiagnosed as iron deficiency without attention to copper status then? 
there's there's two principal labels for for anemia. There's right. iron deficiency anemia, which the World Health Organization, I think the latest article is 2012, tells us it's the most prevalent nutrient deficiency on the planet. Uh, there's more to the story. So what I think the second form of anemia is called chronic disease anemia, sometimes called uh, uh, chronic inflammation. But CDA also stands for copper deficiency anemia. And I think that's the dominant form of anemia on the planet because think about it. Think about it. Iron's the number one element. We're fortifying food everywhere with it. It's, it's in every supplement. And yet people are anemic. No, that's not possible. And so there's a missing piece of the puzzle. And in fact, it was uh, Bruce Ames in 2004, famed researcher at uh, UC Berkeley. At the peak of his career, he was the most quoted scientist on planet Earth. And in 2004, he did a, a major study with his colleague, uh, David Kalilia, and they were studying fibroblasts. And what they discovered is that <clears throat> there can be 10 times more iron in the tissue than shows up in the blood. Well, that 2004 study should have had a shockwave through doctor schools all over the planet. Mm -hmm. And what did they do with that study? They stored it with the Ark of the Covenant in the Indiana Jones warehouse. <laughs> and, and nobody knows about it. And, and this, there's a pervasive myth that everyone's anemic when, in fact, we're all uh, copper-deprived, copper and that's causing us to have high iron. It's so interesting. I, I love perspectives like this that really challenge us to reframe everything and think about where we're getting our nutrients from and, and how, how we might think about this. And seeing this through an evolutionary lens, it makes so much sense. Uh, we would have had copper in our diets evolutionarily. We would Absolutely. have eaten livers. We would have had vitamin A, which is Absolutely. something we, you know, is, is and, and the vitamin A piece is that vitamin A is essential for the, the utilization and, and the integration of copper, right? I mean, there's a vitamin A piece here too, right? We, we we could have a whole conversation just about just about retinol. But just quick, just quick retinol. For quick. Me. Retinol is essential to activate the copper pumps, right? ATP seven A and ATP seven B, and retinol plays a profound role in helping to regulate iron, independent of the copper. It's absolutely amazing. And retinol being the the form of vitamin A that's bioavailable form of vitamin A that's found in in egg yolks and liver, essentially and, animal sourcing. Animal sourcing, different than beta carotene, which is predominantly found in plant foods, right. though some beta carotene may end up in, in animal foods because they're eating grass. But there's this difference and that I don't think people understand about beta carotene in, in, in plant foods and how, how it takes, what is it, like thousands of units of beta carotene to equal the biological what? activity of one unit of retinol? It's not quite thousands. It's, it's called um, <clears throat> retinol equivalency, unit, right. REU. It's 12 beta carotene to become one retinol. Oh, I was way off in my numbers. Okay. But well. No, but but the thing is, you'd have to eat a room full of carrots right. to equal a tablespoon of cod liver oil. Yes, or liver. And that was yeah. something I wrote about, uh, I remember in my first book, that that sweet potatoes were the, the highest source of beta carotene in the right. plant kingdom. And you would have to eat, I think it was over a pound of sweet potatoes per that. day to get the <laughs> RDA for vitamin A equivalents right. that right. you could get in like 
maybe a, a few grams of liver. It was crazy yeah. to think about. And, yeah. and people thought, oh, I'm getting vitamins. It's just, and then this is the, the, the lunacy of, of a vegan vegetarian diet to me, even though I appreciate the intention behind it. The, the execution to me is crazy. When you think about all the nutrients that you can get eating meat, to even approach those, you would have to eat pounds of this. And, you know, to get enough protein, to get the equivalent of, you know, eight ounces of meat, you'd have to eat a pound or two pounds of lentils, right? And yeah, to, get, to get enough vitamin A, you have to eat a pound of sweet potatoes. No human stomach is big enough to do yeah. all these things. And it's just, it's just absurd. But you can just eat liver and meat and, and solve the problems. Well, that's, that's the gift of, of the research of Weston A. Price. Right. Introduces to nutrient dense foods. Right. And and that's the that's the power of that whole that whole concept of what did our ancestors eat? And that makes so much sense to me. And I love that we framed it also with what did our ancestors eat? But then also, you know, you're reminding me of the importance of considering it's 2023. We have a lot of soil that's depleted. We have a lot of soil that's been monocropped. We have a lot of glyphosate in our in our food supply now. And we're really only just beginning to understand how that's affecting us. And so I think we have the blueprint now for how humans are supposed to eat some sort of ancestral paleo animal-based diet, I think is reasonable for most humans. Right. And then we just try and, we try and bring that into the modern world and think about how we might have to adjust for our changing um, current, current space. Right. We, We have to, I think we have to let go of a lot of narrative out there in the world of nutrition. Uh, that that's very, um, it's dogmatic. And so what I've really tried to do uh, is focus on the metabolism, focus on the enzymes, focus on the production of energy. And basically my whole stance is ignore the enemies, ignite the energy. That's really what this is about. And, and, and a body that has, we, we do have a blueprint, but there absolutely is a blueprint that runs our body. And guess what it runs on? Energy. If you don't have energy, you can't run the blueprint. And so that's really what Cure Your Fatigue was all about get the energy quotient up and allow the body to do what it does best, which is keep us in balance. It knows, it knows what to do. It just has to have the right nutrients. You know what's so interesting is that Google searches for I'm tired are <laughs> historically higher than they've ever been. I mean, how many, how many years have we been actually recording right. Google searches? But right. yeah. in the whole history of human existence on Google that we've been monitoring, I think searches for I'm tired are higher than they've ever, ever been. So there is a, just like there is an epidemic of metabolic dysfunction, there's a metabolic, there's an epidemic of fatigue. And I think it's connected with all these things. So let's just, let's wrap this up for people and summarize from my perspective. And I'll, I'll let you kind of summarize, uh, after me to, to wrap it in a bow for people. I'm thinking about magnesium status a little differently. I'm wanting to get even more magnesium than I thought I was getting. Um, than I thought I should get for me, uh, you said five milligrams per pound. Yeah, right. Okay. And that, that for me is going to result in, um, even adding the magnesium spray topically in addition to the maybe 400 milligrams I get per day from orange juice, right. milk, coconut water, and meat. Um, I obviously spend time in the ocean. So the magnesium, hopefully yeah, I'm doing good. We talked about the iron status. I've talked about that previously on podcasts. I'm going to be looking at my ferritin and potentially even pushing it a little further to see how I go uh, a little further down and continuing phlebotomy for me, uh, potentially due to a, uh, you know, previously lifetime deficiency of copper deficiency, uh, lifetime history of copper deficiency. And then from the copper perspective, I'm very curious about, I'm going to go back and maybe get a ceruloplasmin and a serum copper. And I may actually try and get, it wouldn't be hard to have some of these farms that we're sourcing from tested for their soil or these livers 
actually tested from some of these farms and, and seeing what the copper content of that is, because I, I increasingly um, am thinking about getting a, a significant amount or a, a reasonable amount of bioavailable copper. The last thing that I'll, I'll just ask you that we didn't really cover is if people don't want to do the liver or can't do the liver, um, which is hopefully increasingly reasonable to do, especially with things like hardened soil and desiccated organs, mm -hmm. what would a reasonable amount of copper supplementation be for a human per day? Uh, <clears throat> it's fast. It's a great question. Fascinating uh, perspective that's changed over time. Back in the 30s and 40s, our ancestors were eating between four and six milligrams of copper a day in their diet, naturally occurring. Uh, and now in the modern era, <laughs> so-called modern era, uh, we're supposed to be getting nine-tenths of one milligram. It's not working. Um, so I wrote, I wrote my book in 2020, and I developed a copper supplement called Recuperate in 2021. And, you know, you thread the needle, you're talking to people all over the world, you got to be conservative. So I, I tell people, you know, get, get two milligrams a day. That's a, that's a good, that's, that's well above the, the RDA, but it's not, it's not really close to what our ancestors got. So I've actually relaxed it a little bit and tell people, why don't you get two Two capsules, get four milligrams a day. I've got clients now, Paul, who are taking multiple capsules of that supplement. Um, and not it's just not at my direction. And they are finding that they have um, resolved a lot of their symptoms, especially their fatigue, especially their fatigue. Uh, I have um, type 2 diabetics who finally have control over their blood sugars for the first time in their life. And so you're asking a very important, very sincere question, how much copper do we need? I'm afraid we need a whole lot more than we think we do. Um, the, the upper tolerable limit, the upper tolerable limit is 12 milligrams, okay? Now let's put it into perspective. You're a, you're an animal guy. How much does the average goat weigh? Fifty pounds. Yeah, so, fifty, sixty pounds, right? Yeah. Yeah. Guess how much copper the average goat needs in order to stay healthy. This is going to surprise you, I think. Uh, is it something like us? Five to six milligrams a day. Ten milligrams a day. Okay, so more. So more. Even stay healthy at ten milligrams a day. Yeah. Stay healthy. Yeah, 60, 60 pounds, 10 milligrams. Let's do the math. The average human, 150. Right. Right? And we're supposed to get bio nine-tenths of one milligram? Yeah. I don't, think, I don't think so. Now, I'm not saying we're goats, you know, but, but the point is I think we need a significantly greater amount of copper, especially in light of the amount of iron we're exposed to in our diet. And people don't, they, they, I think what's real important in this conversation, I really appreciate your willingness to, to have this kind of uh, give and take. We got to put copper and iron together. They're, they are freaking frack. They are yin and yang. They are, they are absolutely interdependent in our body. And we need to put them together to understand what's happening to the level of oxidative stress in our body. And, in, and when you put them together, then you can really appreciate this, this, general grunt dynamic and the need for more copper is paramount 
because of the rising level of iron in their body. And, and I'm telling you, what, what was really driving uh, the crisis a few years ago, it was cytokine storms, right? Well, what's behind a cytokine storm? It's iron. It's absolutely iron. And no one stopped to think about that. And it was at, at Hopkins in April of 2020 when they realized that the RDW, red cell distribution width, was getting bigger. And what is that a sign of? Excess iron in the red blood cell. Mm. And how does that iron supposed to get out? There's that little doorway again, feral port doorway, run by a copper doorman. And if the copper isn't there, because it's MIA, if the copper isn't there to let the iron out, it's going to and the red cell is going to get bigger and bigger, and it's going to become more and more dangerous inside the body. And so it's it's really critical for people to appreciate it's there is no copper metabolism. There is no iron metabolism. There's only copper iron metabolism. And it's never been taught that way in formal, conventional medical training. And that's where I think probably the greatest... Uh, weakness of the of practitioners training is they don't know that they're connected. Yeah, I can attest to that. I was never taught that. We were basically taught Wilson's disease, genetic right. copper excess. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting to me is that I think you're totally right. Historically, we probably would have had four milligrams of copper. Something. I mean, an ounce of liver, I think, has three or four milligrams of copper in it. So this is interesting to me that there's an evolutionary parallel that right. that, that a right. small amount of liver has a very robust nourishing amount of copper in it, which is, again, why I think liver is such a key part of the human no, diet. But the, but the key now is is make sure that the soils and the animals have that yeah. copper because it's we live in very challenged times, as yeah. you well know. And that's, that's, yeah. that's the part that, not to spook people, but just make them aware that, you know, just because the nutrient label says so, you know, trust and verify, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the... Um, the other interesting thing, I'll mention this and then we can wrap up. I want to respect your time is that uh, I've had Tommy Wood on the podcast a, a number of times in, in the years that we've done the podcast. And he he had a company where they looked at like all the regular metrics that humans could get. And the right. one that they found that was most predictive of mortality or morbidity, you know, was RDW. And I've never heard many people talk about RDW, which is red blood cell distribution width. Right. And they found that the lower the red blood cell distribution width, the better people tended to do. This is just in a statistical analysis. Looking sure. at blood. And, and you were just mentioning, you know, the more iron overload you get because of a copper deficiency, right. because you can't run ferroportin, the higher the RDW, the higher the red blood cell distribution width gets. It's like, you know, how, how varied in size your red blood cells are. But obviously if you, there's, you know, there's, if you have more large red blood cells or you have different differences in size, you're going to have a higher RDW. So every time I get my blood work, I'm always glancing at the RDW. I've never heard, I was never taught in medical school or residency to look mm -hmm. at an RDW. It's a very interesting metric that I think people can follow. You generally want to see that going down. Absolutely. And, and so the, the, the individual who actually developed uh, the, the key components on the blood test, MCV, MCH, MCHC, and RDW, his name was Max Weintraub. Went to medical school in Canada, came to Tulane, got his PhD in physiology, and he's the guy. He wrote the first textbook in hematology in 1942 when he was at Hopkins. He's the guy that, that defined it. And guess what his passion was? Copper. And he knew, if he, he knew that MCV, MCH, and MCHC were low, 
it's a copper deficiency. And if RDW was high, it's a copper deficiency. Mm. And guess what happened to, to Dr. Weintraub? They kicked him out of Hopkins. And then he became the head of the University of Utah School of Medicine. And they did 32 studies in human nutrition, focusing on copper nutriture. And it, it redefined our understanding. Again, the research is with that Ark of the Covenant. But, but the thing is, the research was done. It's available. And it's, it's, it's amazingly insightful information. It's interesting how some research gets discussed and some research get, gets buried. Thankfully, yeah. we, we can still find research that is Ark of the Covenant. You can go to PubMed. You can find the research. Right. It's just the kind of stuff nobody ever talks about. I mean, yeah, with Hard and Soil, we, interestingly, we found research in a library in Freiburg, Germany, you know, yeah, and had, never, had never seen the light of day, uh, you know, and, and we actually had someone go to Germany and make photocopies of this research. And it was research about organs and it was research about animal studies that were done in the 1960s, I believe, or 1950s in Germany, yeah. showing that giving organ extracts to animals increased the size of the corresponding organ. It's fascinating research looking at organ specific benefits. It's just, I only say it to, to, to illustrate the fact that there's, there's a lot of research that has been done that never gets talked about and it's buried. And so I appreciate people like you and, and so many others who are, who are doing, you are the Indiana Joneses of the world. You know? <laughs> Because there is a lot of archaeology in in in, in oh, this really? type of medical research, you know, going through and understanding, like, okay, you, you might hear about a study on the news that says eggs are bad for you because we did a study and people that ate more eggs who also had other unhealthy behaviors perhaps died sure. sooner. And then the next week you'll hear another study that says eggs are fine. This is what we do. We hear about those studies, but we never hear about studies with copper or organs or any of this other stuff. So thank you for doing this work. Um, it's been so much fun talking to you. I learned a lot. Where can people find more of your work? We'll do a part two soon. That'd be great. Uh, social media, Magnesium Advocacy Group, uh, RCP page on uh, Facebook. Uh, there's an Instagram page, rcp123.org is the website. Uh, there's a training program. We're actually going to be opening up the, the roles for that in a couple of weeks. Uh, for people, it's a 16-week program. People really enjoy that. Uh, my book online or, you know, any online bookseller is going to have it. You can get it in a physical ebook or audible. Um, the RCP um, community uh, mm -hmm. is very popular. Uh, Recuperate is a pro product made by uh, Formula IQ. And for people who want to reach out to me personally, my email address is my first and last name at Gmail. Wow. Okay. <laughs> and for the precious few, and I do this every time, Paul, so don't worry. My phone number is 847-922-8061. And it freaks out it freaks out the podcast. It's like, dude, you just gave out your phone number. All right. People are very respectful. And if people need to get a hold of me, I know that it's a, an important conversation. I look forward to it. Well, that's truly a very, that's a very compassionate, kind thing to do morally. And, uh, I appreciate this time you spent with me and we'll do another one soon. Thank you, my friend. Okay. Thanks so much.